We're excited to pick up our Bibles at this time in our worship service and rally around the truth together and have the Holy Spirit assist us in our understanding of this very important passage in Hebrews chapter 11. If you have your Bibles, take them, please, and turn to Hebrews chapter 11. We are in verses 30 and 31 this morning, very excited to talk to you about how faith fights, how it fights. Before I do, I want to say that one thing is absolutely certain, the time we've spent already in Hebrews 11 leaves no doubt whatsoever that biblical faith is vibrant and active. In spite of what the modern church may say and show, the Christian life is not stagnant. It grows and matures. It doesn't coast, it it initiates. It's not passively obedient, a let go and let God kind of faith. No, it it proactively obeys. And our brief portrait of faith from the New Testament that we gave in our last study proves this. Christians are warriors and more than conquerors, slaves of Christ, nobody else, always striving for the upward call of God, constantly pressing on, ever fighting the good fight, wrestling, struggling uh, against temptation, putting to death the lust of the flesh, donning spiritual armor. We pilgrims long for our home. We inform ourselves with doctrine so that we won't be taken in by the schemes of the devil. We said that faith is a difficult walk that leads straight to the better country, which is in the opposite direction of the broad road to destruction and oftentimes runs right down the middle of it. As as to keep ourselves from drifting, we travel with our eyes fixed on the better country. Our gaze is like an anchor road tethered to the anchor that is heaven itself. I'll say it again. Biblical faith is active. It produces good works. It's about service, active duty, and investing tirelessly in the kingdom. Now, beloved, does that categorize your walk of faith? Are you wearing yourself out in the service to the Lord as a spouse or a parent, as a Christian businessman, a woman? as a member of the local church, as a citizen of this country. Whatever your station in life, your position, are you wearing yourself out in service to the Lord so that that though your outer person is decaying, your inner person is being renewed day by day? Are you becoming better at dodging the fiery darts of the evil one, destroying the fortresses of unbelievers' ideologies with the gospel that you might win them over to a biblical worldview, commending yourself by the open proclamation of the truth to every person's conscience in the sight of God? Is a large part of your conversation with other believers about the inner working of the Holy Spirit in your life, the, the delights of communal worship, sharing ideas about witnessing, boasting of God's goodness in your life, his daily supply of mercy and grace, about practical theology, service, God's providence, his sovereignty. Or is it about disappointments in life, grumbling and complaining, business ventures, stock options, and 
how you plan to spend your retirement on the golf course. The latter describes a dull and anemic faith. But biblical faith is active, vibrant, and constantly fighting to reach the better country. Is that truth reflected in your Christian life, in your posture, in the way that you spend your time and money and talents and energies? Would non-Christians size you up as, as being a devoted follower of Jesus Christ that is always forward-looking, radiating this deep and, and abiding joy that never seems to be diminished by the hardships of life and is, well, beyond their understanding? I'll say it again, biblical faith is active, vibrant, and constantly fighting to reach the better country. Now this is the central message of our small section of text in Hebrews 11 this morning. And for the drifting, complacent, and compromising local body of believers in the first century, and possibly some of them with an unbelieving heart, it's just what they needed to hear. But it's what the church today also needs to hear in its season of apostasy and compromise. No question about it. We, we live in an age where no one likes to take responsibility for one's actions, but conveniently blames what is clearly sin on other things. People, relationships, disorders. An age that has reinvented itself <clears throat> on the basis of what it wants. Think about that. Its epistemology is a mixture of irrationalism and emotionalism. It's redefined marriage, racism, gender, morality. But what's sadder is the church, the churches that are taking their cue from the culture and seeking a path of least resistance. So it's important that we rehearse biblical faith that drives us to fight well. Faith is our guarantee of God's promises of future blessing outlined in his word. Because of that, faith is centered on scripture. And as such, it is forward-moving, aggressive, pressing onward and upward, and fights to champion righteousness. We're talking about how faith fights from Hebrews 11, 30 and 31. Let's begin with verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after the Israelites had marched around them for seven days. Now, the writer, to the, the writer refers to this historical account of the fall of Jericho. We're all familiar with it. <clears throat> we read a portion of it for context in Joshua 6, first five verses. Here's what it says. Now, Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. No one went out, no one came in. But the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have handed Jericho over to you with its king and the valiant warriors, and you shall march around the city, all the men of war circling the city once. You shall do so for six days. Also, seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram, ram's horns in front of the ark. Then on the seventh day you march around the city seven times, and the priest shall blow the trumpets. It shall be that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people 
shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up and everyone straight ahead. That's quite an account. So we know that when Joshua led the Israelite army into following God's will, he, he made sure they followed it to the letter. And when they followed it to the letter, the walls of Jericho came down and Israel prevailed. Now upon reading this, we can see right away that, that what God told Joshua to do bears not even the slightest resemblance to any ancient war strategy on record. Or modern one, for that matter. Uh, this was not how the ancients won battles, with soldiers marching around a city, giving horn blasts and loud shouts. In fact, in those instances where Israel had an army, and the Lord promised that he would fight for them and give their enemies into their hands, Israel still went to battle and fought. God would win for them through them. That was the idea. The Jericho invasion breaks with this model, somewhat unprecedented. It's true that Israel did go in and wipe out the inhabitants of the city, yes, but before that, we would have expected them to be chipping away at the weakest part of the wall until they got through, with God's help, of course. But, not, but this is not the case. God himself took care of the wall directly, and after... And, and after having Israel engage in the strange march with horns and, and shouts, what is more, the Jericho battle was, was not left to soldiers only. That's interesting. It incorporated priests carrying the ark and possibly civilian Israelites who lent their voices to the shouting that day. Now, what do we take away from this bizarre real-life account? Very strange. How might we best understand it and its application for the church today? How does it inform our faith that we might live it actively and aggressively? How does it get us to put our spiritual dukes up and fight? Well, according to the <clears throat> Jericho account, <clears throat> it does this in three ways. In the first place, it helps us to understand that our fight of faith is nothing less than holy war. Our fight of faith is nothing less than holy war. I want you to listen to Joshua's explanation of this practical of the practical significance of holy war for God's people then, okay? It says, but the city shall be designated for destruction, and it, it and everything that is in it belongs to the Lord. Do not covet them and take some of the, the designated things and bring disaster on Israel, but all of the silver and the gold, the articles of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. It's very interesting. Holy war in the Old Testament involved physical battles. All right, no question about that. There was blood, there was uh, everything arrows, spears, etc. Very gruesome physical battles. But it was very much God's fight. He went before them to fight, He would give them sure victory. The battle was His. And Israel really fought for God's cause. We know this because there's always the command in holy war not to take any booty 
from the conquering nation. That was off limits. That had to go to Israel's temple because it belonged to God. It's holy war. If anyone took even the smallest item, well, there would be grave consequences for him and the entire nation. You remember Achan, he learned the hard way. So when God's people fought in holy war, they had to obey God's war strategy to the letter, regardless of how abnormal or strange or bizarre it may have seemed to them. Joshua did, and they prevailed. Holy war is not some outdated ancient concept. We don't leave it in the Old Testament. It's a reality for the church today. It always has been. It always will until the Lord returns. I guarantee you, most Christians in America do not think of the faith as holy war. Oh, no. That's why the church in America is so weak and vulnerable and tossed. It's that important. So I need to explain holy war for us today. We don't fight people. The Apostle Paul was clear on that. He said, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And according to 2 Corinthians 10, our weapons of our warfare, they're not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying arguments and all arrogance raised against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now, beloved, we are in a constant state of war against the evil one. Constant. Battling for the righteousness and battling for the minds of men and women. And Paul tells us that it is a worthy fight. It's a good fight. Just as God went before the nation into battle and fought for Israel, so Jesus has done so for us. And this is true in two ways. Jesus went before us. He lived the kind of life that he, he now calls us to live. So in that sense, God has gone before us to pave the narrow way. Our Lord never calls us into something that he himself had not already endured. It's why he can sympathize with our weaknesses. Now, in the end, if he doesn't return in our lifetime, he has showed us even how to die with the promise that though we die, yet we shall live. He rose from the dead and we will follow him in the resurrection. Now, in another sense, God fights for us and it is evident that he does in the sovereign and good plans for us that he that he has for us, that develop us and mature us, that ready us for heaven. And those plans include all our spiritual skirmishes. God uses us in each of these battles to further his will for the church. So the New Testament's expectation of holy war, in our case, is that we are responsible to win our spiritual skirmishes. skirmishes. Okay, we're responsible to win. That's the expectation of the New Testament. Why is that? Because God has outfitted us for victory. He's outfitted us for this war, and this war is God's war. We fight his strategy for his glory, for the benefit of the church, and also the health of our souls, which, by the way, he owns. 
And if, you, if you've never considered your faith as holy war, you need to start now. No matter what you do or where you are, you are always at war. The battle follows you into your public life. It'll follow you into your private life. Your fight for God in your station of life. And you are responsible just as much as the Israelites were in their literal battles to apply God's commands and principles to your very situation in order to win the day for Christ. He has promised victory every time. Now why is it that we don't win every time? Well, because we fail to apply his strategy the way we ought. That's why. So understand that our fight of faith is nothing less than holy war. That's in the first place. Let me say in the second place, holy war puts us in a position where we must act by faith in God's divine promises for future blessing. When you're in holy war, it demands that we exercise a faith that is particularly or especially in God's divine promises for future blessing. We fight the same way that Israel did, by carrying out God's war strategy while counting on the promise, his promise for future blessing. Notice God's declaration, immediate, uh, 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 his declaration that goes out uh, to the nation immediately um, in verse 2 of Joshua 2. He promises immediate future blessing. He says, the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have handed Jericho over to you with its king and its valiant warriors. Did you see that? That is a promise of future blessing, but it's immediate. It's going to happen in their lifetime. In fact, in the very near future. The victory was as good as theirs. God decreed it. It would happen. They simply needed to take responsibility of God's command and act. But don't think that this victory promise was limited to Jericho. I said it was a a, an immediate future blessing. It was tied also to their inheritance of the promised land as well. That means that there is another aspect to future blessing here that was more remote, farther down the future, the distant future. It was specifically that they would inherit a physical piece of real estate, and that piece of real estate itself was a symbol of God's heavenly kingdom to come where they would eventually and eternally dwell with him. So we're once again brought back to the essence of what it means to live by faith. It is to count on, the, on God's promise of future blessing and act. And that's what, we, that's what they did. Now what God promises us, the church, in our fight, is an outcome that is guaranteed to please him. That's the immediate uh, fulfillment of future blessing. If we follow his will for us precisely in the particular fight, he is pleased. And that is a promise, an immediate, uh, a near future promise. The outcome that pleases God, of course, isn't always a peaceful one for us. We understand that. The, the situation could actually worsen for us in the short term. But pleasing Christ should be all that matters to us. That's all that matters to the Christian soldier, to the warrior, the one who has 
strong faith. Our goal in any trial, any spiritual battle, is never to get out of the battle, but to make sure we please Christ in the midst of it. That's the goal, always. Christ's pleasure and approval is for us, then, the fulfillment of a short-term future blessing. God's promise of future blessing to us is that if we handle the trial or the battle by faith, God will be glorified, and we will have been successful in magnifying his good reputation in the eyes of the world and, and showing off our great God and his way to unbelievers all around us. And there is, of course, a long-term aspect of future blessing as well, which is to be with God in heaven someday. So every context in our lives that God brings us in and out of is simply, listen very carefully, an opportunity to demonstrate kingdom living. These skirmishes, the way we handle them by faith, it's a great opportunity for us to demonstrate kingdom living. In, in that case, these battles then help us even prepare us for a heavenly existence that God has already promised us. All the more reason then why we should enter each situation of life, each skirmish, each battle, each one an aspect of the good fight by faith in God's promise that he will bring not only glory to himself through our obedience, but ultimately us to his kingdom. And that's how we live or fight by faith in the promises of God's future blessing. Holy War puts us in that very position to do that. In the third place, and finally, Holy War compels us to obey God's word without hesitation. It compels us to obey God's word without hesitation. Anybody who knows anything about war, especially those veterans among us, know that it is not a good idea to ever hesitate in battle. You do that and you can die. We notice that Joshua and his armed forces didn't hesitate to follow the Lord's will precisely. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and he said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and have seven priests carry seven trumpets of ram horns in front of the Ark of the Lord. Then he said to the people, Go forward and march around the city, and the armed men shall go on ahead of the Ark of the Lord. And it was so. And it was so. That's what it says. There's no indication here of hesitation, no indication of hemming and hawing, or crying out to the Lord twice, three times, maybe even a fourth time. Are you sure this is really what you want me to do? No. No, this is what God said, and Joshua went to it. No hesitation. The text is purposely written to show that there was no hesitation on Joshua's part whatsoever. The young leader who had a reputation for being fearless and was no stranger to battle didn't flinch at God's bizarre instructions. He went right to it because he firmly believed that this was the way God would bring future blessing, both immediate and remote blessing. As I say, hesitation in battle isn't good. It can get you in trouble. God's church in the New Covenant can take a lesson from Israel's trust in God here. This is surely why the writer of the Hebrews drew upon this context to exemplify living by faith. I, th 
I think that the strength of our faith, this is, I'll put this in propositional form. The strength of our faith in Christ is directly proportional to the immediacy of our compliance to his will. Do you follow that? The strength of our faith in Christ is directly proportional to the immediacy of our compliance to his will. You can be sure that your faith is strong in Christ, which is the correct object, when you obey him without hesitation. You hesitate, your faith isn't that strong. The more you hesitate, the weaker it is. The the, the quicker you are, the more immediate you are, the stronger it is. That's what I mean. Whether we trust Christ, Christ enough will show in the amount of time it takes us to obey his will. His wartime strategy for us is what is most important to us in the good fight of faith. It might seem bizarre or not in line with what we would consider to be a normal approach to this situation, or that it might bring us deeper into the thick of battle instead of away from it, but God wants us to obey him immediately without hesitation. So when we understand the Christian life, that it is really a holy war, a fight of faith, obeying the Lord without hesitation, our faith may be said to be active, vibrant, and constantly fighting to reach the better country. That's how we we need to live. Well, we turn our attention away from Jericho and over to another war context. The victor this time is Rahab the prostitute. (laughs) The writer uses her to instill courage in the lives of those Jewish Christians who were not fighting in the first century, but we're drifting instead. And we read in verse 31 this, excuse me, faith, by faith, the prostitute Rahab did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. What is this all about and why would the writer draw on a Canaanite prostitute as an example of how to live by faith in God's promise of future blessing? Well, to answer that, we need to Rehearse a little bit her part of the story from Joshua 2. You remember that once Joshua succeeded Moses' leader, he sent two of his men as to spy out Jericho as part of the larger campaign of taking the land God had promised them. The spies wind up at Rahab's door. She welcomes them in. And when Jericho's national guard got wind that she might be harboring spies, they paid her a visit. She hides the two spies in her attic and sends the guards off on a wild goose chase. And she waits till nightfall to be sure the danger is past, then lets the two spies out her window and down the side of the city wall, which was also the side of her house. Now this was a bold move by Rahab. Bold move. She betrayed her own people. She betrayed the Canaanite gods in order to help God's people. What possible reason would Rahab have for doing this and endangering her life and the life of her family? Well, for the same reason that the writer draws on this story. Rahab had believed in Israel's God and was counting on his promise of future blessing. That's why. 
You say, well, how do you know that? Well, listen to her words in Joshua 2.10. She says to the spies, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have despaired because of you. She goes on to tell them that, that they all heard, the Canaanites, they all heard about God parting the sea and how he delivered Israel out of Egypt and how he destroyed the Amorite kings. She then says in verse 11, when we heard these reports, oh, our hearts melted and no courage remained in anyone any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Mm. According to her own testimony in Joshua 2, and the way that the writer of Hebrews understands it, Rahab was without doubt a true believer. And the verse we just read clearly indicates that she had come to believe in Yahweh as her God before the spies came to her. How did this come about? Well, that's a good question. Hebrews 11.31 gives us a hint. Got to be careful here. We're treading on kind of shaky ground. The hint is this. It it references the Canaanites as not being obedient. And that implies that they were disobedient to God and specifically disobedient to his message. You say, really? Well, this is a familiar context in the New Testament. It's a familiar one where people who are pagans are referred to as being disobedient to God, specifically with regard to the gospel. Listen to John 3.36. The one who believes in the Son is eternal life, but the one who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That, that refers generally to all peoples. There is in 1 Peter 2.8, talking about a mixed audience, both Jew and Gentile, Peter says, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, speaking of Christ, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this they were also appointed. Then again in chapter 3, verse 1, Peter says, in the same way you wives be subject to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, They may be won over without a word by the behavior of their wives. Gentiles can be disobedient to God, and in these contexts, it is to his word, his gospel, his saving word. And it's significant that the word is used only in this way in the book of Hebrews. In chapter 3, verse 3, it refers to unrighteous Israel, who were disobedient to God's word and didn't enter his salvation, his rest. Chapter 4, it refers to anyone during the writer's lifetime, Jew or Gentile, who would not place faith in Christ, but rather be disobedient to the message. He says, chapter 4, verse 6, those who previously had good news preached to them fail to enter God's rest because of disobedience. He then urges all in his congregation, of which there were undoubtedly some Gentiles, Make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following the same example 
of disobedience. What I am suggesting is that the Canaanites may have been familiar with Israel's message of salvation, as familiar as many in America today are with the gospel. Yes, yes, I, I know we need to be born again in Jesus, someone says. It, it makes no difference if they think it's foolish. They know it's there. The point is that they, they know it's there, and the Canaanites knew of God's covenant promise of Messiah's work, generally speaking. Do you think that's a stretch? Let me see if I can convince you. They knew of Israel's God and his great acts of saving grace. Rahab already told us that. They must have also known that Israel was not a people of idols. They were a people of commandments. Do you remember Moses' prophecy in Israel or to Israel in Deuteronomy 4.6? Let me refresh your memory. So keep my commandments and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Isn't that something? Wow. It's quite a prophecy. It's entirely possible that some had even brought the message to Canaan before Joshua ever got there, and it had spread around for many years. Don't forget Lot. You forgot Lot, didn't you? He was, the godly, he was in the godly line. He lived with his family in Canaan. Is it possible that Rahab heard the covenant promise of Messiah through others who had been influenced by Lot's family through a couple of generations? And before you dismiss that as improbable, think about the famed three wise men, men of astrology from Babylon, who came looking for Messiah. How did they even know about Messiah from Babylon? Because 400 years before they were born, Daniel lived there. Is it so far-fetched to think that Daniel, who was quite outspoken about his faith and lived it unashamedly, could have propagated the covenant promise of Messiah, could have even won over disciples that affected several generations, including ultimately the wise men themselves? I don't think it's far-fetched at all. Well, we don't have Rahab's testimony, so we'll leave it at that. But we know that no person is ever saved without hearing God's covenant promise of Messiah's redeeming work. No one. Salvation comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's always been the case. The implication of Hebrews 11.31 is that the Canaanites had, and only Rahab and her family believed it and were saved. The rest of her countrymen, because of their disobedience to God and his message, were destined to perish. And that is, a, that is actually the prophecy way back in Genesis 15, 16. God had marked the Amorites out for destruction. Amorites are the progenitors of the Canaanites. As it turned out, the prophecy came true. And as they increased in their immorality and their debauchery, God finally judged them through the invasion of Israel. In the end, it really makes no difference how Rahab came to a saving knowledge of God. It only 
matters that she had. And she demonstrates her faith by her works. She helped the spies against her own country, obeying the spies' instructions that would ensure her safety from the pending invasion. And later she proved faithful as she and her family dwelt with Israel just outside their camp. We read in Joshua 6, verse 25, the prostitute and her father's household and all she had, Joshua spared, and she lived in the midst of Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. I think the reference to Rahab at this point as the prostitute is really a testimony to the saving work of God because she wasn't that anymore. In fact, what's more confirming is that Rahab, according to Matthew 1.4, married Salmon, a Hebrew, who had Boaz. And Boaz was King David's grandfather, which means that Rahab is in the genealogy of Christ. I would say there is another hint that Rahab and the spies may have even discussed briefly the great salvation of Messiah in Joshua 2. Now, I cannot be dogmatic on this, but let me just show you. In 17 to 19, this is what we read. Spies speaking. We shall be exempt from this oath to you, which you have made us swear, unless when we come into the land, you tie this cord of scarlet thread in the window through which you let us down. And gather, gathered us into your house, into your father's house, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. It shall come about that anyone who goes out of the doors of your house outside will have his blood on his own head, and we will be innocent. But anyone who is with you in the house, his blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on him. So she was to tie this scarlet thread on her window so that all who remained inside and under it would be saved from God's judgment on Jericho, meted out by the Israelite soldiers. Hmm. Does that have a familiar ring to it? It should. Two generations ago, Hebrew slaves applied lamb's blood on the doorpost and lintel that covered them in their houses from the angel of death, which these very spies may have been old enough to witness. Could it be that they spoke of the blood of the lamb that covered them and what it signified? Maybe it's just coincidence that the thread Rahab was to use as a sign for their protection against God's judgment just happened to be scarlet. Admittedly, there is nothing in the New Testament that suggests that the scarlet thread was a type of Christ, as Passover is. But keep in mind that the Bible is very much a literary work. Its authors drew upon themes and figures to carry their theological message of redemption through their writing. Whatever conclusions you may arrive at about the scarlet thread, what we know for sure is that Rahab was certainly counting on God to fulfill an immediate promise of future blessing, right? Salvation from death, physical death. That was to deliver her 
from the Israelite invasion that she knew was coming. By faith, she listened to the spies and was proactive. And there is every reason to believe that she was also counting on being part of the company of saints who were anticipating the coming of Messiah, in whom she trusted and in whose line of genealogy she hold a pl- held a place. Once again, biblical faith is active, vibrant, and constantly fighting to reach the better country. Rahab understood this and was able to do remarkable things in her situation. So can you, with the same understanding. Let me hasten to bring some closing thoughts then. I'm going to pull the lens way back, catapult us to our current day, We read the Old Testament, we marvel at the miraculous displays of God's power. We all do that. God, through his servant Moses, brings ten plagues on Egypt, parts the sea, causes water to gush out of a rock, makes a piece of metal float. Elijah calls down fire from heaven to strike fear in the Israelites, who were Baal sympathizers. Joseph and Daniel give interpretations of dreams that come true. Joshua parts the Jordan, prays for the sun to stand still in the sky, and here has Israel march around Jericho in solemn procession with reverence to the Lord and wins the battle as the walls come tumbling down. I think we've all wondered at some point in our Christian lives why God doesn't work that way through his servants today. There are some, of course, who believe that he still does, and they claim to have seen Christians perform wonders on a scale of biblical proportions. The Sign and Wonders movement was founded on the premise that we can expect great signs and wonders from God in the same way that the Old and New Testament saints experience them. It argues that the miraculous that God works through his servants is normative for the modern church. That's what they are. As you might expect, there are others of us who reject that premise. Who's right? Should we expect God to endow certain believers with these sign gifts and work through them to bring miraculous signs and wonders, heal people, raise them from the dead, inflict temporary blindness on the enemies of the church, or as the deliverance movement uh, claims to do, cast out demons from people who have been possessed? Or are we to think that such spiritual gifts serve their purpose for a fledgling church and are no longer normative for today? This is not a message on signed gifts and their validity, but suffice it to say that the passages people use to support the signs and wonders movement don't provide explicit teaching on the subject. That is, the passages themselves. And the proponents of this movement infer their view from these passages. At the same time, there are plenty of New Testament passages that do unmistakably teach explicitly that such miracles and signs and wonders that God did through appointed and gifted Christians were for the fledgling church's development and are no longer normative for the church today. Having said that, Let me make two points here. First, we, of course, are not denying that God performs miracles today. He certainly does. 
In fact, conversion is a great example. That's when God raises the dead. We are simply arguing that God doesn't endow believers with these special sign gifts today. The second point I want to make is this. More importantly, what God does work through all his elect is as important and as powerful as that which he had worked through Moses and Joshua, through Elijah, through Joseph and Daniel and Joshua. Just as important and just as powerful. Obeying the Lord's commands in a fallen world such as ours will often seem as outlandish as God's command to Israel to walk around a building seven times for seven days. Contending for God's truth in the area of marriage, morality, preserving gender, and defining roles of husband and wives is as daunting today as the prospects of crossing the sea was to Israel. And when God grants a victorious outcome to the church, oh, such as the one he granted to Grace Community Church in California, where Pastor John MacArthur won his lawsuit against the state of California for the constitutional right to worship even during outrageous and politically motivated pandemic restrictions imposed by the left, that victory was tantamount to God parting the sea. What I am getting at, beloved, is we believers should fight the spiritual war by faith in God's promises of future blessing, fully expecting that God will move in spectacular and miraculous ways through our obedience to bring about his plan for the ages and in time bring us to our home where Christ is.